You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word. That means when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak to us. Today's Bible reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to chapter 4, verse 3. Please follow along in your Bibles, and the passage will also be up on the screen. There is an occasion for everything, and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid bracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work of God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. I also observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see that for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust, and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward, and the spirits of the animals go downward to the earth. I have seen there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his his activities, because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. 
Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort for them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commend the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Uh, that is a grim reading, isn't it? <laughs> um, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word tonight. Lord and Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Soften our hearts that we might receive that word. Transform our wills that we might be those who do that word. Loose our tongues that we might proclaim that word. And we ask this for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, uh, I want to kick off again into the book of Ecclesiastes uh, by giving ourselves some reminders, some things that we should remember. The best reminders, the best reminder is the general thesis of the book. Do you remember it? It's there in chapter 1, verse 2. Can you voice it? By the end of this little series of four, I hope you will be able to voice it. I hope it will be etched in your brain. Here it is. The author, also known as the teacher, says, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolutely, absolute futility, everything is futile. Now, let me tell you, it's not hard to learn, so you might try that during the next few weeks. Um, the key word in that statement is the word that our English translations render, futile. It is a word that has a broad range of meaning in Hebrew, and when it's added to things such as work and effort, um, it is particularly potent. You get a very dark picture. In verse 3, for example, our writer says, What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labours under the sun? Basically, the overall impression you get is that all is untrustworthy, all enigmatic, all insubstantial, all fruitless, all unable to be depended on. Doesn't leave much, does it? And by all, he means all. Realistically, he thinks all is futile. And he thinks observation will prove his point. Participation will prove it. Honest reflection will prove it. Absolute futility, everything is futile. Now last week, we listened to our wise friend and he examined various aspects of life. And today we're going to do more of the same. However, this week we're going to get some further insights from the New Testament. And I suppose some of you will be getting... a We'll feel that to be a breath of fresh air. But let's see. Perhaps that'll enable us to lead today with a little more positive perspective than I've left you the last week or two. So let's get started. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, that passage we just read. He says, There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under sun, a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to tear down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to throw stones, a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent, a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate. A time for war, a time for peace. 
There's a certain rhythm about these verses, isn't there? It's so rhythmic that a famous 1960s song uh, group called, the old ones are already smiling, they know. The older ones are there, they know it. It was the Seekers. They wrote a song about this verse in Ecclesiastes. Have a, look at how it ends, verse 9. What gain have workers under from their toil? In other words, life may very well be filled with such variety as the seekers can sing about and as he can say. However, life is still a meaningless pattern when you look at it. We spend, we spend our time going from one activity to another activity, never quite knowing why, never quite being able to choose which activity it will be. Our chances of choosing the right moment, the right time, are riddled with uncertainty. And if they haven't been yet, they will be one day for you. Um, events, seasons, all are imposed from outside us. We are slaves to outside forces in many ways. We are far from being the captains of our own souls. Now, sisters and brothers, lest you think Solomon is over the top, just think about it personally for a moment. Think of your daily life. Essays come at the wrong time, don't they? Families drop in. Or loving, caring families drop in without notice at the wrong time, such as when you're working on a sermon on Mother's Day. <laughs> Children cry at the wrong time. Car accidents, well, they come always at the wrong time. And so on and so forth. Human beings are inadequate under God's disposal of the epochs of time. However, this points us beyond time. That's what it's designed to do. If time is determined by outside forces, then maybe, just maybe, there's someone in control of the outside forces. In other words, in the very, existen the very existence of time, God has made in us an inner intuition of eternity. Maybe somewhere someone's in control and it might work out. A tantalising intuition. But let's now move to another area, that of morality and justice. Look at, with me at chapter 3, verse 16 to 4.3, and look at what our author says. I also observed under the sun there is wickedness at the place of judgment. And there's wickedness at the place of righteousness. And I said to myself, oh yeah, well God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity under sun. And I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam. That's you and me. And they may see for themselves that they are just like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals, it's the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Over, um, they, have, they all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place or come from the dust or return to the dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I've seen that there's nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that's his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. 
Well, this is dark, isn't it? For better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Now, I've met negative people, but he's something else, isn't he? His point is clear and obvious, though, isn't it? When you think about it, when we look at the world, it sometimes seems morally upside down, doesn't it? Still, if God rules over time, then possibly we can hang out for judgment. But if you die before seeing that judgment, then what use is it? What then? Are you any better than an animal? And our author says, no. Therefore, his point is that if there's any meaning to be found in life, it must be found there in life. You cannot rely on the prospect of future judgment. But then, having said that, he concludes that there is no meaning in life to be seen on its own. And so comes the crushing conclusion. Can you have a look at it with me in the, in the chapter? Chapter 3, verse 22. I have seen nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that's his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Now, let me tell you that outside of the Christian world and uh, some other religious worlds, that is very common, isn't it? And if you haven't seen it in the workplace yet, you will see it. Where people say, ah, all I've got is what I've got here. And anyway, he goes on. And so we wonder, well, is there anything that is not going to come under his hammer? <laughs> he seemed pretty ruthless. Is he, will he spare anything? What about religion, for example? Perhaps religion is a way out. And sure enough, our author turns to that topic. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Look at it with me. Look and listen. Guard your steps, he says, when you go into the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Don't, and he's talking about being in there, don't be hasty to speak. Don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labour, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he doesn't delight in fools. Fulfil what you vow. Better that you do not vow than you, do not, than you vow and do not fulfil it. Don't let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not stay and say in the presence of messengers it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore fear God. These observations are directed as humans, as worshippers. And one gets the impression that the target here is the religious person who likes a good worship experience. Does that make sense? Who likes worship as an act. The sort of person who turns up at church and listens to what goes on with only half an ear because they're enjoying the experience. Who makes promises but never quite gets around to taking them. That person has forgotten where they are and who they are subject to. They have forgotten God, basically. They're more interested in themselves. But from religion, let's turn to another topic for our author, death. The whole book is scattered with comments of, on death. But I want to highlight just a couple of them. I want to do it because Ecclesiastes faces death head on more than just about anyone else in the Bible. Okay, I think he's, he, he is open and honest. 
It is death that causes him to reject wisdom as the way of finding meaning in life. Chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. He appears to see death as the test of all things. I want you in your Bibles to turn to chapter 3, 18 to 21. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over the animals, therefore everything's futile. All are going to the same place. All come from the dust. All return to the dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children... This is caustic, isn't it? Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam, humans, go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. He goes a long way, this man, doesn't he? Now look at chapter 5, 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked he came. He will carry nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. That too is a sickening tragedy. I mean, this is Frank, isn't it? He's saying if there's nothing else, then you go to the grave with nothing in your hands. You may have worked day in, day out. You may have studied really hard to get into the right university and the right subjects and so on. And But at the end, you take nothing. That's very, very caustic, isn't it? He says, this too is a sickening tragedy. <laughs> exactly as he comes, so will he go. What does one gain from for his struggles under the uh, for the wind? What was all that study for? Now look at chapter 12, 1 to 8. So, so he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you'll say, I have no delight in them before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain on the day when the guardians of the house tremble. On the day that the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop and and women grind grain but cease because they are few. And the ones who watch through the windows, they see dimly. See, I've already started. The doors of the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint, I can't hear them any longer. So not only do I need the walking stick, I've got no ears to And also they are afraid of the heights and dangers of the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, its, 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 its spring, and the caperberry has no effect, for mere mortal is headed to his eternal home. And mourners will walk around the street before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. See, things break. 
And that's the end of your life. Everything you treasured, it's now just rubble. And the jar is shattered at the spring. You've got no energy to fix it anymore. The wheel is broken into the well. And the dust returns to the earth as it once was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. This is a magnificent piece of poetry, let me tell you. Even if you don't agree with it, it's magnificent poetry. But it's haunting, isn't it? It's evocative in its expression of the unrelenting walk toward death. You may feel young today, but before long you'll be as old as me. And then you'll be as old as our parents, most of whom are no longer here. It's haunting, isn't it? Let's see what we can make of all of this. I I have really pushed hard tonight. Deliberately. Let's see what we can make of this. We can see from the few few quotations I've made, there are numerous points of contact between, guess what? Genesis 1 to 11 and Ecclesiastes. Let me show you some of them because I think this is the clue. Think of Genesis 1. There God makes the world a place of peace and harmony between humans and God, humans and humans, humans and each other, and the created order, doesn't he? Everything is good in the garden. However, we know that by Genesis 2 and 3, things have changed. Humans reject the idea of living under the loving rule of God. They become determiners of their own destiny. They choose independence. They become their own lawmakers. They attempt to make their rules determine their own destiny. That's what's going on. And the end result? They are locked out. They're excluded from the life-sustaining presence of God. Chapter 3 of Genesis 22 to 24. And the earth they live in is subjected to a curse. It now bears thistles rather than fruit. They are condemned to increase toil with work no longer being part of the original blissful existence. 2.15 and 3.19. And death enters in as the ultimate physical destiny of all humans, shattering everything, even if you work hard all your life. You will die like everyone else before you. When you listen to this, can you hear the links between Genesis and Ecclesiastes? Where Genesis speaks of the earth as cursed, Ecclesiastes speaks of it having kinks, things crooked in it, (laughs) Not, not straightforward, and gaps, what is lacking, he says, in life. The impression is that the hand of God is behind this, Genesis 7, verse 13. And the situation is irrevocable. It cannot be turned back. This is the way the world now is, post-sin, post-Genesis 3. Genesis also makes other things clear. For example, Genesis makes the point that humans are an unstable combination of dust and breath. Chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 19. Ecclesiastes says exactly the same thing. The second human being born into the world had the name Abel. You remember that? Second human being had the name Abel. I'll tell you how to pronounce it in Hebrew. Hebel. Hebel. That word's almost identical in Hebrew to the name vanity in Ecclesiastes. Hebel. That's tough, isn't it? Can you hear what he's doing? But there's more. 
Ecclesiastes highlights the idea of original righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 29. The book shows us the calamitous result of a fall of a man's life in chapter 7, verse 20. Genesis 6, 5 has striking similarities with Ecclesiastes 8 and 11 and 9, 3. So does Genesis 21 and 25 with Ecclesiastes 9, 9. But there's even more. So in Genesis, I wondered whether I should put this section in the, this sermon. So where Genesis, Genesis portrays women entangling the man in sin under the serpent's guidance, Ecclesiastes has some pretty tough things to say about women as well. Mind you, he has some tough things to say about men too. While Genesis talks of humans being excluded from the tree of knowledge, chapter 2, verse 15, the writer of Ecclesiastes has a preoccupation with the ignorance of humans. Can you see what's happening? The writer of Ecclesiastes, I think, is heavily dependent on Genesis 1 to 3. Heavily dependent. And he's drawing it out and saying, if you believe in this world, this is what you should say and see. And I think that, therefore, I think the similarities are deliberate. If so, then what is Ecclesiastes doing? He is looking at life in a fallen world. A world after sin. And he's saying, come on, come on, be realistic. That's the way the world is post-sin. But he's also implying, and this is the beauty, but it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always like this. It wasn't intended to be like this. Rather, it is like this because of judgment upon sin. Because humans did wrong. So let me summarise and highlight the links between Genesis and Ecclesiastes. Genesis 7 verse 20, the writer is clear, all humans are sinful. He says, there is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. All humans face death. Chapter 7 verse 2. Listen to it. It's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting, since that's the end of all mankind. And the living should take it to heart. We live in a post-fallen world. And what happens in a post-fallen world? There's no eternal life with God in this existence. You die. Ecclesiastes 3.17. Solomon talks about death as judgment. Genesis does exactly the same thing. He talks about death as a place where you face the consequences of how you've lived life. He reflects on whether people who have lived live remembering their creator. And he talks about evil and judgment. He says this, listen to Ecclesiastes here, it's chapter 3, verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. Then he goes on to say, that was 3.17, this is 9.3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There's one fate for everyone. If you haven't ever thought that, you're, you will. Why is it that we all end up in the same place? Then he says, in addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But there's another brighter side. Listen to this. This is from Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9 and following. 
This is advice for you. I'm past this because I'm older. (laughs) And he addresses it to you. Rejoice, young person, while you're young. So if I'd made you pessimistic now and, you know, down, listen to this. And let your heart be glad in the days of your youth and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. And the punchline? But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. Ooh, (laughs) he's wicked, isn't he? (laughs) Advice given to youth in the light of such things is this. Ecclesiastes 9, 3 and 11, 9. There's an evil that uh, um, in all that is done under the sun, there's one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full on evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. Then Ecclesiastes um, again says this. Rejoice, young person. This is chapter 9, verse 3. Rejoice, young person, while you're young. And let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. And walk in the ways of your heart, in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. It's, it's honest, confronting, overwhelming. But it has some enormously good truth. However, there are some salutary things to notice about the book as a whole. The book is not a final comment on the world. So if I've been beating you over the head for 25 minutes, (laughs) here I'm about to ease up a little bit. There are some other salutary things. It's not the final comment on the world. You see... Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, did not believe in an afterlife. He did not believe in an afterlife. Many people of that era did not. You only had what you've got in this world. It's also clear that his word is not the last word. It's not the final comment that God has to make, therefore, on the world and on death. No, another will come after him. A greater one than Ecclesiastes, than Solomon. A greater one will come. And we see the impact of his coming. We know that in Jesus, God himself, the one who imposed futility and judgment and death on the world for punishment for sin, in response to human sin, he enters the world in Jesus the Christ enters the world. Jesus, the one true human, the one sinless human, the one who never deserved to die, comes into the world bent and twisted as it is. He suffers its worst wickedness. He, the one righteous human in history, experiences death. The only one who did not deserve it gets it. In Jesus, God, therefore, accepts, experiences, deals with the ruin of the fall in Genesis 3. He takes it on. He turns apparent futility of death into victory. Seeming defeat is turned into triumph and futility of death is vanquished 
Friends, please understand what is happening. Just look at the beginning and the end of the Bible and you'll see it. The triumph won by Jesus, the Christ, spells an ultimate reversal to the fall and what Adam and Eve sent us to, as it were. The defeat of death and its futility by Jesus contains the promise of the lifting of the curse for all creation. So let's try and wind up. You've really stuck with me well tonight, most of you, and I hope this has been helpful. But last week we returned to, uh, we turned to Romans at the end of the Bible talk, and I want to do that again tonight. So have your Bibles open at Romans 8, 18 to 25. I think it's both the key and the answer to Ecclesiastes. So I've given you a hard time tonight, but I want to tell you I've been honest with what this text says. Honest. So we need to face it. We need to work it out. There we can see that because of Jesus, there will be a new world which will not be the home of futility and death. Hear that again? In Romans 8, we find a world where because of Jesus, there will not be a home for, it will not be the home of futility and death. Rather, it will be the home of righteousness. The words of Romans are glorious in their extreme. With all that I've painted for you, I want you to listen to them again. God speaks to that apparent futility and dead end through the Apostle Paul and he says these magnificent words. So just let soak them in. Listen to them, read them. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits eagerly with anticipation for God's children, God's sons, to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, to Ecclesiastes. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Can you hear it now that you've heard Ecclesiastes? Can you hear that? Can you see now in Romans 8 something you've never seen before? For we know, he says, that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit, we, as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Because I still get old and I will die if the Lord doesn't come. Not only that, he says. So we groan. And then he says, now in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with patience. Friends, as the stick comes in life, as the hair drops out, as energy to do things gradually decreases, I look forward for a new body, 
for presence in the, in the company of God and his son. And I wait eagerly for it. I'm not hurrying to die. I, I, I'm enjoying life as God's person. But here are some parting shots for you. So this has been a long sermon. You've done very well tonight, so thank you. But here are some parting shots. Given that we know life is lived, if you're Christian, under the sovereign rule of a creator, who is also a loving redeemer, we can live joy to the full, even though at times we will find it mysterious. Life is to be therefore lived boldly and actively and adventurously because we live in God's world. That's number one. Be bold. Two, live life heartily. Live life heartily. You see, the world is a created place and life is good in this great place that God has made. Enjoyment of God's world, let me tell you, is not a sin, but can perhaps be seen as a positive duty. We can live life heartily under the truths of God in Christ. And that particularly applies to the young among us. For these days, these are the days when enjoyment can be greatest. So in such days, live life heartily, honestly, righteously, in this wonderful world created by God. Now, I was a very serious young Christian. I was converted at 18. And uh, a year or two later, I met a woman. And she understood this. She understood it. She has taught me how to enjoy being a created person. And it's rich. You can enjoy it. So although this doer stuff I've given you, no, learn from those who know and know and understand God and this part of him. Live life heartily, honestly, righteously in this wonderful world created by our God. But as you do, remember to be responsible. Remember that full enjoyment and fulfilment in life is not found in, found in the transitory that will pass away. No, it's found in the company of God and under his loving rule. So second thing. Third thing, live life responsibly. Finally, if you know God as your creator, then admit your finitude before him and his work and be humble before him. Recognise that God's loving rule is to be loved, respected, obeyed and lived by. Embrace it. Enjoy it as you can. Praise him for his great love and salvation in Jesus and look forward to the great promise of a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus has made possible. It will come. It will come for God promised. Let's pray. Father, we praise you today for your great love and salvation in our Lord Jesus. And we look forward, Father, to the fulfilment of your great promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells that has been made possible because of your son Jesus and his death. We pray this in his name. Amen.